Welcome back to And World Peace. I am your host, Maggie Gelson Burnett. And on today's episode, we have oh, just such an amazing guest joining us. I know I say that every time, but I really do mean it. And every single guest on the show has been so incredible and has exceeded my wildest expectations of who I would be so fortunate to interview. So I just love them all so much. But before we get into today's episode, you know the drill, a couple of housekeeping items. The first is that Anne World Peace is now on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Peace. This is a way you can support the show on a monthly basis while gaining access to exclusive content. Another way you can support the show is through Spotify listener support. This is a one-time donation done through Spotify if that is your listening avenue of choice. Of course, you do not have to do either of these things. I'm just grateful you're here in the first place, you know? But do feel free to share with your friends and family if you think that this shit would be enjoyable for them. Now let's get into today's guest. We have Katie Gaddy Tossan joining us. Katie is the face and voice behind the brand Money with Katie, a personal finance media outfit on a mission to close the wealth gap. I have actually known Katie for about 10 years now, which is absolutely insane to me. But Katie and I were in the same Rokai group when we rushed uh, for our sororities at the University of Alabama, so taking it real back. I actually worked with Katie back in 2019. I had just moved to New York City, and I basically had no real concept of how to manage money. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. And I remember Katie posting some kind of beta client thing on her Instagram story, for some sort of financial planner that she was going to be releasing. And so I thought, what the heck, you know, I'll reach out to her. And we had kept in touch since college, so whatever. So I reached out to her and it actually was one of the first iterations of the Wealth Planner, which is Money with Katie's, I believe it's their most popular product that they distribute every year. So it was an amazing experience working with Katie because she really was sort of my gateway drug into the world of personal finance. And oddly enough, you know, my parents would probably not know this, but I have read a lot of personal finance books. I've done a lot of personal finance research, which again, anybody who knows me would probably think is very funny. Uh, But most of that has been by the influence of Katie. She has really influenced me to make a lot of positive changes in my my financial wellness, which was obviously very needed when I moved to one of the most expensive cities on the planet. So anyway... Katie is just so amazing. She has a wealth of knowledge in the personal finance space, obviously. She has her own podcast. It's the Money with Katie show. I hope you enjoy this interview and welcome Katie to the show. Katie, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm just so excited to interview you. It's Thank you. It's really good to see you. (laughs) Yes, likewise. Watching your journey over the last few years has been just nothing short of remarkable. I mean, it's been so cool to just observe all of it. Um, obviously from my, from like a bird's eye, you know, I, I, I'm sure I have no idea what has gone on in the the, (laughs) behind the scenes. So, so we'll get into that, but I want to start by asking you a question that I ask every guest that comes on the show. And it sort of relates to my own experience in pageantry is sort of where Mm -hmm. this comes from. And 
I realized this after I had spent over a decade in, in pageants. And when I got done, you know, my life blew up and everything kind of went to shit. And I had what, what will heretofore be known as like the greatest undoing of all time. Like it was Mm. just, it was just a total mess and a total unbecoming of self. If you want to call it an identity crisis, you can, that's fair too. Um, But what I realized is that every single woman I was interviewing had a very similar story and had a Mm. very similar sort of undoing. And for a lot of people, it happens at multiple times in their lives, but, but for all intents and purposes of this question, I'd love to know about a very specific time that was maybe your undoing or your unbecoming uh, that led you into being the person you are now or was really pivotal in it. Such a good question. It's maybe telling that there's no one thing that really comes to mind immediately as this was the turning point or this Mm -hmm. was like the crucial moment where everything fell apart I guess part of me is like oh god does this mean this is still ahead of me like that's probably (laughs) frankly what that means but when I think back on how things have coalesced to get to where they are now and by where they are now I really would refer to running money with Katie and having a a, I would say semi-successful you know entrepreneurial endeavor underway and and doing this full time, I think the kind of big letdown moment that then redirected me on this path would be really at the beginning of the pandemic in, I don't know, April, May, June 2020 time period, where I think that was the time when it was very clear that what I thought my life was going to be for the next few years was not what my life was going to be. Mm-hmm. I worked for an airline at the time. I was expecting to get a raise and a promotion at that company and to be with that company for a long time. And I thought, okay, my career is like really taking off. I'm going to be studying uh, more user experience design and user experience writing and things of that nature. Like, I guess this is what I'm going to do. And it wasn't really because I was in love with that field. I mean, I thought it was interesting and I liked it well enough, but it wasn't like, you know, my life's purpose. I just felt like, okay, this is how I'm going to make money. This is the company I'm going to be at. And that period really shook things up in in the same way that I think it did for a lot of people. But I started looking for other work and had for a while by that point been pretty interested in personal finance and, and in money and in all the things that money touches, which is everything. (laughs) And I was in the job market interviewing for a role with a company called NerdWallet. And I got really far along in the process and ended up not getting the job. They gave it to somebody else. But they had already told me the salary was probably in the like 80,000 range, which was a good 20,000 more than I made at the time. So I became really attached to this idea of... A, getting to write about money for a living and B, making more money doing that. Because previously the idea of writing about money for a living always struck me as something that was going to be a career setback, not something that would actually push me forward. And so not getting that job ended up being 
the best rejection I have ever experienced because it really lit a fire under my ass to figure it out on my own and to say, well, I don't need someone else to write about. I can do this by myself. I can just write about money as me. Yeah. And without that kind of pivotal rejection and redirection, I don't think I would have focused on this as much. I mean, I definitely don't think without the pandemic, I would have ended up here because it required that shakeup and that kind of pause moment of like, oh, no, no, you thought you knew where mm-hmm. you were headed over the next few years, but you had no idea. Yeah. I think that is that is maybe the moment that I would point to for now. <laughs> I guess yeah. we'll see what the future holds. <laughs> no, that's amazing. I mean, I think, you know, the there's a, a very certain commonality amongst every guest I interviewed that the pandemic played such a big role in mm. in that sort of undoing. So I, you are definitely not alone in that. And I think, yeah, that makes total sense. So I guess, you know, this is a good, good segue maybe, you know, into this that did you ever expect Money with Katie to turn into what it is today? Because I remember in 2019, I think I was one of your first beta clients of the wealth planner, which is Mm -hmm. your biggest selling product at at Money with Katie, if I'm not, if I'm not wrong. And so like, did you ever think that this was going to turn into what it is now? You know, what's funny is now that you say that, I think you actually might've purchased like the very first one. (laughs) I think I did. It was like, I think the very, I think you were customer number one (laughs) in the books, which is crazy. I owe so much to you. Like if if there were, if there were an office, there would just be a picture of, of Maggie on the wall, (laughs) like the one, the first dollar. Um, Oh my no, God. I mean, I mean, it's funny. It, it's like, no, how could you ever expect something like that? I, I don't think, I don't think I did, but by the same token, I think I always had this weird knowing that it was the right thing to do and it was mm-hmm. what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I think my biggest, most outlandish goal at the time when I started and I wasn't making any money from it was if I could make $10,000 a month, that would just be beyond my wildest dreams. Mm-hmm. And looking back on that and looking back on the sense of scale that I was thinking with, I have to think like, no, I don't really think I was, I ever would have expected it to turn into this, but I did always feel pretty confident that it was going to work. Mm-hmm. Like, it's hard to explain. I I don't think I've felt that confidence about really anything else in my life, really. Like every (laughs) other thing I've tried, my, my former career, my uh, brief stint in, in fitness instruction. I mean, there were other things that I was interested in, but there was nothing that felt aligned in the way that this did. So I guess I never really gave it much thought, but I mean, now today we are, encroaching on a like I think our revenue this year will be like closing in on two million for the year so that obviously does not go to me unfortunately (laughs) be pretty cool (laughs) if it did but like as a business it's it's making nearly multiple seven figures at this point which is just would have been unfathomable to me at that time so I do feel very fortunate I guess that I followed that inclination and listened to that gut instinct 
Um, but it was such a compulsive pull after a certain point when I started like, I don't, it it would have been hard to stop. Honestly, I I really just loved it so much. Yeah. There's, there's some book, I think it's, I think it's Stephen King's dark tower. Mm -hmm. And my husband, I don't know this because I have not read it because I hear it's really boring. Um, but (laughs) my husband is reading it and he said, there's some quote about how humans have a really hard time understanding or fathoming uh size like so mm-hmm. so size is really hard for us to um to wrap our brains around so that the size of like the size of the planet and the size of you know um where our businesses go or or like you know mm-hmm. how much money people actually make or um it's sort of like those pictures online of like the piles of rice and it's like this oh, is how yeah. much uh, money Jeff Bezos makes in an hour. And it's like each thing of rice is like, you know, a million dollars or something. And you're like, okay, cool. So, so like, for me, those, those are really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> um, amazing. I love that. So you sort of had this, um, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you've alluded to it on, on your social media before. You sort of had this like, for lack of a better term, hustle mentality is what oh. I would call it for, for uh, a while there when you were, what for what it seems like the, you know, the first maybe year or so of your business of money with Katie. Mm-hmm. So looking back and kind of reflecting on that period, do you think that that is something you would do over again is really implement that, you know, hustle and grind and working, you know, around the clock sort of, sort of vibe um, or is, do you think that that has led to, you know, burnout in any way for you or, you know, did it lead to any resentment of the business or, you know, anything like that? I'm just curious what that time was like in those first, you know, few months, couple of years even. Yes, I would do it again, knowing what I know now. But I think the hard truth about that time is that I was just to give a sense of kind of the way that things were going. I had two remote kind of full-time roles. Mm-hmm. So I had pretty, I would say, I'd say above average, we'll say, um, obligations to my full-time job. And I was teaching probably four fitness classes a week at that time, either on the weekends or before work. And I was trying to build money with Katie. And so because at the time, all of these things felt like I had to do them to keep moving forward, either to keep earning money or mm-hmm. to stay fit or to get money with Katie in a in a spot that felt self-sustaining, I felt like I had to do them. And so it didn't really feel like there was much room to budge. And, and taking any one of those things off the off the plate didn't feel tenable. And I think that's one of the harder things about managing a big workload is that so often, even today, people will tell me, well, just do less. And I think the challenge there is that it's not always clear what could even go, like what mm-hmm. what you could take away and not really suffer from. Right. And so at, at the time, um, at the time, I think what I should have probably done was quit one of those full-time jobs Mm. and maybe quit teaching too. I think I thought I had to do all of it, but in retrospect, I see, well, because you probably knew at the time, like what was going to be the one big, what was going to give you that outsized return and what was going to really go parabolic for you, which was money with Katie. 
you probably could have dropped everything else, just focused on that and gotten to escape velocity three or four times faster than you did. Mm-hmm. But because right. you were trying to do all these things and maintain all of the spinning of the plates and keep all the balls in the air, it distracted you really. And so I would have done it again if that were the only way through. I don't regret that time, but I do think that it was certainly a case of I was working harder, not smarter when I really could have probably just been like, okay, let's make a concentrated bet on this thing that we think is going to work. And if it doesn't work after three or six months, then we'll go back and get another full-time job. It's fine. Right. Yeah. But that was such a period of scarcity and uncertainty I don't think people really, it's hard to even remember or articulate what that time was like. I feel like we got out of it so relatively quickly, but no one really knew what was going to happen in the economy or the job market. So if you had a job or jobs, in my case, it kind of felt silly to be like, well, I'm going to voluntarily let one of these things go. That felt almost irresponsible, right? So I think even today, though, the, the lesson that I sometimes try to draw from that is whenever I feel myself becoming too spread thin or feeling like I've got my hands in too many things, I will often try to step back and and really ask like which of these things, maybe they are all important. Maybe they all do. They're all projects worth doing, but do all of them have to be happening right now? Is there something that we could just push back a quarter until this one existing project is off the ground? Is there something that we can maybe downshift a little bit? But my nature is very much like, to me, scaling down or downshifting feels like admitting failure or defeat. And so <laughs> I have to really work on that because it's it's patently not that. Mm-hmm. But I think when you're an overachiever, you identify identity. You mentioned identity. When, when your identity is wrapped up in being the type of person who can manage a lot, yeah, it doesn't feel so good. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, that's, I think a, uh, to your point, like that's how a lot of women are generally is, mm-hmm. is these really high-performing overachievers who, who tend to just sort of like throw their time and effort at all these different things and then experience insane burnout when that happens. So, um, or when, you know, when push comes to shove. So that's a really fascinating kind of, uh, story because what, what comes to mind is I worked briefly for Lululemon and, you know, I didn't, I didn't gain much from working at Lululemon. I'll be totally honest with you because I spent all my money that I made on clothing. Um, but one thing I did gain was the team at Lululemon has this kind of saying where they say, slow down to speed up. And it's Mm -hmm. the concept of, okay, if we can just slow down, if we can take a minute, if we can take a breath, then we can speed up the process of how we're going to fix this in the, in the end end game. And I always love that. And that's something that has come to mind on probably the last four or five episodes I've done with, you know, these incredibly high achieving women. Uh, I always think of that, that little, you know, kind of slogan or, or phrase. So I love that. Um, kind of switching gears. I want to talk about how you, you talk about finance. That is your, that is your thing, personal finance. That for so many people, especially women is the 
is harder to talk about than literally their sex lives. Like it is literally <laughs> it is the scariest, most like jarring topic for so many people. Mm-hmm. So how do you think you got comfortable speaking to people, especially on a very large and public platform? How did you get comfortable speaking with people about this very, very, what I will call a taboo topic that is quite uncomfortable for many? Are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? No, I'm not. basically the idea that you learn a little bit about something and you think you know a lot about it because (laughs) because you just know a little bit. So you know enough to be like, oh, okay, this is pretty simple. This is really straightforward. But then you learn more and you realize through the process of learning more that you actually don't know anything. And like, oh my God, there's so much to know about this. So when I think back on my decision to start publishing things to strangers online, about money. I think I was in the early stages of that Dunning-Kruger where I was like, I knew enough about personal finance to be like, oh, this isn't that complicated. Or like, oh, this is actually pretty exciting and cool and interesting. And, you know, there's nothing controversial here. What could be more straightforward and uncontroversial than like a 401k plan? But then like fast forward where I now know I would say exponentially more than I did when I started. And I probably have more fear now than I did back then. Right. About yeah. talking about things online because now I am so hyper aware of of how of how fraught this issue is for people. Right. right? I mean, it 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 touches everything we do and mm. it impacts the types of lives that we can lead. And in the US, especially, and I would say just in you know, industrialized Western culture, money is very much associated with like your character and your intelligence and your worthiness as a person. Like we really hold up people who have achieved financial success and we assume that it means they are, that they are good and that they are smart and that they are worthy. And conversely, there is a real stigma against being poor in the U.S. and not having money and being in a place of lack. Like the assumption is that you did something wrong if you don't have resources, that you must have screwed something up. And there's so much tied up in in what we have and what we don't have and how we got it and how we're going to continue to get it that I think for me, I realized pretty quickly after I started publishing about it and started getting feedback and I just, you know, started doing it full time. So I had more time to be reading books and to be listening to podcasts constantly and to just be devouring information that this is something that um, is going to impact different people differently. And there is no one size fits all solution Mm -hmm. Um, in that, you know, there are things like this is like a very popular, I would say this word has almost become so popular to the point of not meaning anything, but like privilege in this space. Mm-hmm. You hear that word all the time now. The idea of privilege being like a very popular concept in personal finance rhetoric, it's very common now. 10 years ago, 
it wasn't anywhere. Like you were not going to pick up a book that mentioned socioeconomic privilege. And of course, now we know that that is like one of the biggest determinants of like what type of socioeconomic life you are going to lead is how, you know, your access to things as a kid, your socioeconomic status growing up. And it's not everything to be clear, but it, it plays a big role. And I think we as a community, as an industry are like just in the early innings of like wrapping our heads around that and infusing that type of language into what we do. So, I mean, I think it makes sense in this cultural context that, that money is a touchy topic, but I do think that getting past that, however possible and extricating ourselves from the assumptions that, you know, having money or not knowing what to do with it or not having money, not knowing things about money, that that's somehow shameful or that it reflects poorly on you as a person, we have to get away from that because until we do, women are going to feel as though they can't talk about these things openly. And when we don't talk about it, it doesn't improve. And much like you get recommendations about everything else in your life from your social circle and family and friends, like you probably would be, it would behoove you to do the same thing financially in many cases. Yeah. Unless those people are like buying Dogecoin, in which case don't listen to them. But, but it's, you know, to talk to people like how much they're making, what the, you know, what their take-home pay is, how much they're contributing to retirement, if they're saving for a home. I mean, these are, these are decisions that make or break quality of life. And the fact Mm -hmm. that it's still considered kind of gauche to discuss them openly, it's like kind of that final frontier and yeah. It, yeah, it hurts women and other marginalized groups, especially. Mm-hmm. Right. Fascinating. I, I, well, first of all, I could listen to you talk about personal finance and the world of oh. <laughs> what you do forever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think so much of where I know myself and a lot of my social circle is at is based so much on what we just took in as kids from mm-hmm. our parents and, you know, caretaker caregivers, um, as it relates to what we, what we know about money and kind of, you know, our feelings about money as a whole, um, or just finance, personal finance in general. So I guess my question as a follow-up to that would be, you know, for example, if there's somebody who is, you know, commenting on, on your shit or, you know, or just, or just, you know, sees you on the street and is like, Hey, I listen to your podcast, whatever. And they ask you, you know, they explain that their socioeconomic upbringing was, was not, you know, not great, not, mm-hmm. not of the average person. Where do they begin? Where's their, where's the starting point of somebody to fix their finances or to even just learn more about money? Like that seems like such a big and gargantuan task to take on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, do you have a place where you would tell somebody, here's, here's where I'd begin? Oh my gosh. And like, who has the time, right? That's, <laughs> that's the other thing is that this is like, yeah, a full, exactly. it feels like a part-time or full-time job when you first start. Yeah, And totally. I think when I first started learning about these things, I felt so excited by it because I didn't really have a lot of financial baggage to be fair mm-hmm. like it it my upbringing was pretty anodyne in that respect and so you know i always had been told by my parents you max out your 401k you pay off your credit cards every month i mean it was a very sterile 
mm. relationship, even even if it was a little bit, uh, we'll say a little over the top. You know, my mom would like track everything she spent in a spreadsheet. And so here I am <laughs> like apple tree. But so, here, yeah, I mean, it, the influence is strong. Right. But I think, you know, a couple of years ago, I would have said, oh, well, it's very simple. Actually, you just need to start tracking your spending and then you need to read this book and then you need to. But I think if you're coming from a background where you have I would call it financial trauma, even if we're talking little t trauma. I mean, I've talked to people that have seen their parents lose everything. Mm-hmm. I've talked to people who were homeless for a little while because, you know, their parents lost their house. They had to live in their car. I mean, things that like I cannot even wrap my head around. I think there is the, the first step of healing that relationship has to be psychological and mm-hmm. understanding what your money stories are and what your relationship with money and resources and and what it's characterized by if it's characterized by fear if it's characterized by intimidation if it's characterized by loss these are things that we can't easily overcome until we excavate them Mm -hmm. and it's not something that to our earlier point because we don't really talk about these things openly it's not common for us to even realize that those stories are there or that they are what's driving us, you know, subconsciously behind the scenes. I heard one really good example where they basically talk about how if you are someone who grew up, you know, at or near the poverty line, mm-hmm. and so you never had much, and it was always like, where's the next meal going to come from? Are the lights going to get shut off? you might find yourself in a pattern not of hoarding money, but of overspending it because there is this distrust that you won't have everything taken away from you. So if you can spend it before someone can come get it, okay, well now I'm, you know, now I'm protecting myself in that way that that's the subconscious mechanism that's going on. So from the outside looking in to an objective observer who has maybe never had that experience and was always, you know, food secure and shelter secure, you might look at that and be like, what the heck? Like you grew up with nothing and you have an overspending problem. Like how, how is that possible? But it actually makes quite a bit of sense when you understand how the brain reacts to situations where it feels like someone is constantly kind of, you know, reaching in your pocket and pulling out what you got, whether mm-hmm. that was the landlord or um, that was the, the second that your mom got a higher paying job, your food, your um, SNAP benefits were taken away. And now like, she can't pay for groceries. I mean, it's just, there's so much there. And I think that there are a lot of exercises online that will help with this of, you know, finding your money stories and understanding. And I think that there are even people you can talk to like a certified financial therapist who will ask you the right questions and help coach you through healing that relationship so that you can start to walk down the path of the tactical, practical things like budgeting and like investing and and things like that, where, You can learn all of those things, but if you don't have the core kind of psychological piece, puzzle piece locked into place first, it's not going to go very far. It's not going to be worthless, but you're not going to get as much bang for your buck. It's going to be very diluted. So I think that's very important. On another note, I do think that there are some really great resources for learning those practical, tactical things even just in like a one-stop shop. So Mm -hmm. I really like the book Quit Like a Millionaire by Christy Shen. She grew up in abject poverty in 
China. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just again, unthinkable and, and even unthinkable by the standards of like American poverty. Yeah. Um, And they ended up, I think, moving to Canada and then to the U.S. And she, you know, went to college and got a job and started saving and learning about money and is, you know, now a multimillionaire in her 30s. But I love her book. I think she does a great job of of breaking topics down. And I, I think my chosen um, medium for getting started is books because there's something finite about them. You can hold them in your hand. It feels like all the information I need is right here. Mm -hmm. Sometimes going on the internet first can be a little bit overwhelming because there's just so much and every page you end up on is linked to 47. It just feels never ending. It's like, there's no structure. And so you're kind of, it's like poking through the wilderness. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think starting with a good book, like Quit Like a Millionaire or like Ramit Sethi's I Will Teach You to Be Rich and letting that kind of form the basis. So it's like, okay, now I have this nice structure. Now I have this framework in place. Now I feel comfortable going and Googling to learn more about these things because now I have a mental house to put those things in. I know Um, this is the room where we talk about savings. This is where we talk about budgeting. Whereas if you don't have that structure in place first, you're kind of swimming upstream a little bit. So mm-hmm. I, I always like to start with a book and then yeah. branch out into the things that you're going to find online or in podcasts or, or, you know, other mediums. Totally. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. I've actually, I think I read both of those books mm. by your recommendation. Uh, oh, good. Yeah. I think I heard about both of them initially from your, you know, Instagram or, or whatever. Um, and they're both quite fabulous. But yeah, I think that I will teach you to be rich was the sort of the book that, that made me look around and, and think to myself, holy fuck, like, what have I been doing? Like, I like <laughs> just this moment of like, oh my God, like you need to get it together. Um, so thank you for that. Um, so. Oh my God. Ramit is so funny. Even to this day, he's just, right? yeah. Yeah. Also he had, his, he has really blown up recently because that book came out for the first time in like 2008 and oh, yeah. he had the netflix show uh yeah. how to get rich and we went to his like premiere party for the show and so i got to meet him in person which was really cool but it's just amazing to amazing. see the career and the company he's built yeah about this topic i mean it's very expansive for me but i just he's so unapologetic and i love that like i don't even necessarily agree with every single thing that he says i agree with a lot of it but yeah but i just love that he sticks to his guns and he does not water himself down Mm -hmm. to try to appease everybody i think i really struggle with that is like i want to be liked and i think that's a that's like a i hate to say it but like that's just like we're saying you know being a high achiever, giving everything you're all like, these are all, I'm like such a, I'm a trope, right? Like yeah. I am just like classic, like people pleasing, you know, but totally. it's, it's yep. just, that's the, the, the water I'm swimming in. And so I think I, uh, I'm trying to get a little bit braver about yeah. saying what I really think and not trying totally. to uh, dilute my, my message. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, in such a, again, a, a, a universal experience for women is, is the, sort of just innate need or desire to want to be liked by literally every single person yeah. we have contact with, regardless of them being a huge piece of shit or not. So um, <laughs> I eat me in college with every single person I came into contact with. Um, okay. I want to, uh, there's a couple other questions I want to ask. And then um, I have a very specific topic I want to talk to you about tonight. So your mission 
of Money with Katie is mm-hmm. to um, close the wealth gap. Mm-hmm. So what do you feel the future of Money with Katie looks like? Yes. And that mission is new for us or articulating that mission is new. Yeah. Which I love when you sent me your bio, I was like, it just, it feels so right. Cause I'm like the wage gap is something entirely different, right? It has like myriad factors. I think the wealth gap is so interesting because it's one where we know what causes the wage gap. Like we have very Mm -hmm. good data around to some extent. I mean, the, the, the preeminent researcher about the wage gap just won like the Nobel prize. So we have a lot of information about why women over the course of their careers earn less than men do. But the wealth gap is so fascinating to me because it's much larger mm-hmm. than the wage gap. You know, for every, what what are we at now for the wage gap? It's like 83 cents on the dollar as opposed to, I think with the wealth gap, it's 55 cents on the dollar. So much larger chasm. And in my mind, something that's a lot easier to fix because it's more of a, a knowledge gap than anything else. Um, all that to say, I think the future of Money with Katie, as I see it now, is we we want to really double down on our storytelling work and expanding into we're going to get back on YouTube and try to start producing more highly produced videos and, and, and getting out there and in my mind functioning less like, you know, personal finance influencer and more like a journalist, if that makes sense, yeah. or more like journalists mm-hmm. telling people's stories and and telling stories that help people think about these things differently. Think about that intersection between class, um, socioeconomic status, um, politics, race. I mean, all of these really hairy and inescapable things and where that road intersects with the personal finance individual, you know, what can you do about it? Practical, tactical, what happens at that intersection? That's what we think is super, super fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I think our, our storytelling is going to be a big focus in 2024, but as far as the business itself, I'm not really sure what comes next. It's, it's funny to say, I, I haven't, I think I've always wanted it to grow and always wanted the mission to expand and get bigger and bigger. But as far as the brand itself, I kind of just feel like we're we're on the right track. And I trust that if we keep doing what we're doing, the right opportunities will come. And I, I think I personally want to continue to launch other brands or or maybe even acquire other brands in the future that continue to speak to this audience about other things that they care about, whether that's entrepreneurship or um, just the experience of being like, you know, a a modern woman today. And and what there's this brand called Gloria. I love, I love what they're doing. So I'm kind of keeping my eye on them, but I don't know. I'm like long-term media empire, short-term, I'm not so sure, but I, I just, I love this audience. I think that, that there is such an opportunity to continue providing value and interesting conversations like the ones that you're facilitating um to women who who you know want more for their lives and and want more for one another yeah Mm, i love that it's amazing and i mean obviously you've got some pretty fucking rock solid stuff going on right now with you were uh your show was acquired by morning Mm -hmm. brew is that correct 
Yep. And then uh, you also have a book coming out. Is yeah. that that's public knowledge, right? Yes. 2025, I think is like the target publication date. We'll see Amazing. Um, early 2025. But um, yeah, right now the working title is Rise of the Rich Girls. Pretty excited about that. We just launched a second franchise within Morning Brew, a brand called Bossy, which yes. is about, you know, building businesses with um, my co-host Tara Reed, who's fabulous. Um yeah. And then there's, there's kind of the things that I refer to as like the always on keep the lights on stuff, which is that core money with Katie show product. Um, our core newsletter product, social media, which is again, yeah. is an ever evolving space that I have a very love hate relationship with. <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of, mm-hmm. and, and our, our core flagship product that you were customer number one for the wealth, wealth planner. planner. Yeah. <laughs> which definitely, you know, inspired so many of my, uh, you know, financial decisions, which, mm-hmm. you know, haven't always been great, but the wealth planner who among us did has. Help me <laughs> yeah. I, I was, I was very illiterate when I, when I purchased <laughs> the wealth planner, but then, you know, I read a few books and I, I've kind of, kind of sort of got my shit together. So, um, okay. So, Kind of putting money with Katie to the side for a moment. Yeah. So there's a topic I I I saw you talk about it very briefly on a TikTok the other day, and I, mm. um, as I'm sipping my my kitty cocktail, uh, my Shirley Temple, I can't help but uh, but ask you about it. So you've been sober for over a year. Yeah. And I I want to know about that the decision that led you to that, or you know, or what the moments that led you to that mm-hmm. decision. And how that has influenced your business? Mm, such a good question. Well, Maggie, as you know, as an Alabama alum, <laughs> um, there is a former much, fight out girl. <laughs> yeah, and former fight out groupie. There is one thing that we did in college, and that was drink. And we drank <laughs> a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, I think for me, alcohol always symbolized a very carefree part of my life. And the way that I characterize it is not that I was irresponsible per se, but just that I lacked responsibilities. There wasn't much that my life required of me at that time. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't really matter if I was drunk 30% of the time and then hung over another 30% of the time and barely hanging on by a thread the remaining 30%. I mean, it, it just, it didn't really matter. And I think that party kind of continued into early adulthood, particularly when I started making money and could actually afford to drink, um, go out to bars and party and have fun. And, you know, I was living in Dallas, which was at the time the biggest city I'd ever lived in. Um, And it's funny because I never really felt like I had a problem with alcohol, but I did start to feel like alcohol was detracting from my life more than it was adding to it. Mm. And I think it's because that responsibility calculus of, okay, this is what my life asks of me, that started to go up. And I think I didn't really, I mean, I I wasn't going out and getting drunk every Friday and Saturday night, like I was in college, but like I would still drink probably like almost every day with dinner. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just kind of felt like looked back and said, you know what? 
I don't feel like this is making my life better. In fact, I can point to a couple times this year that it has actively made it worse. Um, like a work event that I was at where I drank so much that the next day when I had to fly back from New York, I was like sleeping on the floor in JFK. And I was like, well, this is a low point. Um, <laughs> this is not, this, I'm like an adult. Like I should not be doing this anymore. I should not be getting to this point anymore. And for whatever reason, for me, the idea of just like drinking in moderation or like only having one or two was less appealing than just cutting it out entirely. I was like, what do I need one for? What do I need I... two for? I'd rather just not. And it's easier for me to put a cold stop to it than try to walk that line and like do that dance of like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, limit myself to one, whatever. Um, so I haven't had a drink since September 3rd of 2022. And wow. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a coincidence. It definitely was my most professionally successful year um, that followed. But I think I just realized, like, I want to be my best self all the time. And I want to make decisions that are going to make me my best self all the time. And alcohol did not fit into that picture. Yeah. And I didn't really think that I would that I would last more than a couple months. But then I kind of found out that, oh my goodness, like not drinking feels so good. Like I love not being hungover. I love even being sober at weddings and like seeing people get, just like being present and lucid at like events that are fun and raucous and just feeling like I have my wits about me and I can just decide if I'm tired to go back to the room and, you know, get in bed and go to sleep and like not wake up and feel like shit the next day. It just feels, yeah, very aligned to like the chapter that I'm in right now in my life. And um, it had a lot of positive trickle down benefits too. quitting drinking. Like it allowed me to take a better look at some of the other physical choices that I was making that were not really serving me like the way I was eating. And -hmm. like, I wasn't very hydrated all the time. So I like actually with that additional clarity, I, I, started working with a nutritionist and a trainer and they like got me totally right. Um, and so that was really powerful too, was like, okay, well now that I don't have alcohol in my system, like what else can I start to improve? So I think those positive choices and the momentum that they create really compounds. And I think that goes for a lot of things in life, health, money, like all of it, but it, it usually starts with identifying like, what is the root cause of a lot of the, we'll say less than stellar choices that I'm making or less than stellar situations I find myself in. And I just couldn't ignore it anymore that alcohol was kind of seemed, I felt like all roads led back to that. So Mm -hmm. it's been a really rewarding uh, experience for sure. Nice. Oh, I love that. Well, three of my, my four siblings are, are sober and Mm. it's, uh, it's certainly been a, you know, my, my relationship with alcohol has not been a, uh, you know, to, to your point, it has not been an easy one, especially mm-hmm. since leaving college and, and sort of having to figure out what that, you know, what that dance looks like and how, and how to make it work. Yeah. So I, when you mentioned that in your, on your TikTok, I think is where I saw that I was like, oh my God, I've got to ask her about it because I'm, I also admittedly am, uh, there are two, <laughs> there are two types of books that I own every single one that there is. Tell me. The first is personal finance. Every book that you've recommended, I own. Oh my it. God. Literally, I'm not kidding. And and <laughs> my, 
Some I haven't read, but I own them. I do own them. And they are, they're on a shelf somewhere. Have I read it? it I own it. <laughs> nope, but I got it. And the other is Quitlet. I, I read mm. a, an absurd amount of Sober Curious uh, books. Quitlet. Um, I've never Quitlet. heard that yeah. phrase. Yeah. I like that. Quitlet. Great. Um, so I, I just am fascinated by, by both topics that we <laughs> have talked yeah. about today. So I love <laughs> well, that. Thanks for asking me that. Are, yeah. And you mentioned Shirley Temple. Are you yes. in a, are you not drinking? So, you know, I'm, I'm exploring. I, you know, I, I said to myself, I, you know, I've had a few very like sort of distinct moments in my life where I've looked at a bottle of wine and I've said, absolutely never again mm. will this be a thing that mm-hmm. happens knowing that that's probably you know knowing that like for somebody like me like i i do thoroughly enjoy like just having a glass and like mm-hmm. i enjoy the taste and i enjoy the experience of it you know but but when does that become you know do i enjoy the experience of it in my living room or do i enjoy the experience of it in in the south of france you know like there's yeah, yes. very different <laughs> things we're talking about here. So yeah, I kind of, you know, last weekend I sort of was like, I think it's just time for a while to just mm-hmm. probably put this to bed. Yeah. And um, because to your point, it's, it has been the one thing that, you know, I can pinpoint for sure, you know, in the last couple of years, especially where I've grown a lot professionally, I've, I've made a lot of, you know, pretty substantial moves in my career and in my, you know, professional working life. And, um, I've got a lot of like cool things I'm trying to get done in the next, you know, couple of years and every single moment where I've had, you know, a setback or something that didn't work out or, you know, whatever, it's almost as if, you know, like you said, all roads lead to this one thing that just kind of keeps fucking everything Kind up. of uncanny yeah. in that way. And, you know? Yeah. And it's fascinating, like taking stock of that and just sort of being like, Hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's time to noted. Yeah. 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 Like maybe this is just, this message has just been really pounded into my brain. So, Mm -hmm. um, it obviously makes it easier too with, you know, holidays and stuff, having, having sober family members makes it quite easy to, I also do. I I have the same situation where a couple of my brothers-in-law are, are sober. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it it does make a big difference when there are other people around that don't drink. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's something that I just encourage people to try. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, because it's not that it's not that everyone necessarily is going to get something out of it, depending on like how it's how, you know, your relationship with it has functioned in the past. But I don't know, man, I think um, I've always said, like, I could see myself if I were like retired and like didn't really have anything to do that I would like maybe drink casually again, but it's just so hard for me to, to draw that line. Mm -hmm. Like if I start, I'm like, Oh, that one was fun. What if we had three more? Like that would be even more fun. (laughs) It's like, once I start drinking that like moderation inhibitor kind of is like, that was the worst I could have. Totally. So I can't, I just don't want to take that risk with my well-being anymore. Yeah. I mean the science behind alcohol is absolutely fascinating to me like I, I like I said with just reading all this quitlet and mm-hmm. I follow a ton of like sobriety accounts and doctors who talk about sobriety and all of that and um I don't identify as sober obviously but I you know 
I have explored or, you know, done a dance with being sober curious for many years. And so, um, it's the science behind why we drink is absolutely just astonishing. And like, especially how it's so different for women. So Mm -hmm. that to me, I think has been the, it's like, you have a drink and then your brain is hardwired to one another. That's why you want the second, you know? So it's like, for me, I, I, I look at that and I just think, well, it's, that's what the body does, you know, in these instances. So it's not like, I'm not necessarily the problem. The booze is the problem. So have you read quit, quit like a woman? Oh yeah. I'm mm-hmm. sure you have. It's That's one of my favorites. Yeah. It's so good. But I thought that her take on that was so interesting. How, how the reason that we talk about alcoholism as a framework where it's like, it's focused on the individual and like individual mm-hmm. failure of like the alcoholic, yeah. it's you, you're the problem because you can't drink responsibly. Whereas with things like cigarettes, you are, if you are a smoker, the, the name or, you know, uh, delineation for like someone who does the activity mm-hmm. is the affirmative smoker. Right. It's not like yeah. I go and I'm a non-smoker. It's like, no, mm-hmm. you only, you only call yourself that if you are, uh, a smoker. And, and the assumption is that there is a chemical dependency or an addiction because it's an wow. addictive thing. Like mm-hmm. cigarettes are known to be addictive. Right. So it's not like there's some people who are like, Oh yeah, I just like, smoke for fun but like i'm not a smoke it's just you don't it's doesn't you don't talk about it in the same way and it kind of like i love how she just was highlighting the way that alcohol we really take the blame off the substance and we blame the person the user rather than the and it's the only drug that we do that with where it's like your fault rather than like oh well obviously it's the drug's fault because the drug is addictive yeah totally I hurt. I mean, that entire book is a work of art and should be probably mandatory reading for, for everyone. But, but, you know, as somebody who has uh, addiction runs in my family. And so I think that for me was a really almost jarring moment where I was sort of like, oh yeah, like, of course this isn't course this isn't the person's fault of course we created yeah. this thing that's like you know a substance that isn't that is meant to do this to somebody mm-hmm. uh so yeah i i couldn't agree more okay so kind of wrapping things up here so we're gonna do the world war world peace section so for those listening who don't know what the world war world peace section is well this show was based off of uh has some pageant undertones is what i like <laughs> to refer to them as which is that it came as a product of my experience in pageantry. And so the sort of stereotypical answer to any onstage question at a pageant, if you have ever attended one, is world peace. It's what our world needs. And so I decided that this section of the show was going to be world war or world peace. And it's going to be topics that I I broach with the guest that are applicable to the guest or the, the person's niche that I am speaking with. So for you, Katie, the first, they're meant to be fun. They're meant to be, you know, just, this is where we have a a grand old time after talking about (laughs) about a bunch of serious bullshit. So, um, okay. So the first one is, um, Dave Ramsey. You just came out, you chose violence. Uh, you know what? I guess I got to go world war on Dave Ramsey. Um, you know what? And I've given that man the benefit of the doubt. I really have. Cause I know yes. he's helped a lot of people for sure, <laughs> but he just, he just, there's some viral clip of him recently talking about 
how people should be withdrawing 8% of their assets a year because mutual funds always return 12. I mean, it's just like super, this sounds like gibberish to anyone that's not like in this world, but it's like borderline negligent advice Right. that if someone were to take that and follow it earnestly, like they would run out of money in retirement, which is obviously a very terrifying prospect. So world war. Yeah, for sure. I, I just saw a clip of him the other day I don't know how this even got onto my for you page. I don't know <laughs> what mistake I made along the way to where the <laughs> algorithm was like, we're going to serve you Dave Ramsey today. Because um, I actually did try to read one of his books one time when I was just getting onto, you know, the personal finance train. And and I I think I got a quarter of the way through it. And first of all, his voice was like did me in. Like I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty sensitive, unfortunately, to people's voices. So so like when I listen to audiobooks, it's like you can't have a terrible voice, otherwise I'm totally out. So that, you know, eliminates about 50% of Audible Audible's category. <laughs> um, and so I I tried listening to it and but yeah, anyway, I saw this clip of him the other day and it was like this woman's spouse made, I don't know, some insane amount of money, you know, seven hundred and ninety-five thousand dollars a year or something, like something like that, whatever. Um, to the average person, what would seem like a very enormous salary. And she was talking about how she wanted to go back to work and like all this stuff after they had their, had this child. And oh no, he just goes on this like whole tangent about how like, you know, his wife was a stay at home mom and like she, and it's the most immediately. No, immediately. (laughs) no. And I was like, you know, I totally understand that. Like, this is an egregious amount of money that like, you know, you could definitely live off of it with just his salary. But I sort of was like, you know, let the girl live. Like if she wants She's to telling you to she wants to go to work. She not everyone works for money. Some people work for independence or like autonomy or freedom or joy or mastery. Yeah. I mean, oh, it drives me crazy. That drives me absolutely crazy because you know what? This is the thing. If the tables were turned and if it were a couple, a man calling in and saying, my wife is a, is a corporate attorney and she makes 795 K and I want to go back to work. He would not be lecturing that man about becoming a stay at home dad. You bet your ass. He'd be like, Oh, well, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yes. He's insane. Um, okay. So next one is, um, now this one's really applicable because and I, I'm so curious to know your thoughts on this. Okay. This is not necessarily a world war or world peace one. It's just, I'm curious to know which one basically. So tracking money and budgeting in a spreadsheet or using an app, what do we think? World peace for both. However, I, I, I do both for the record. I have an app that aggregates all the purchases because I spend on several different credit cards. Like you routinely. use rocket money? Is that what? I use Copilot. It's called okay. Copilot. It's okay, like a, for... kind of a newer up and coming. I used one. Copilot for a while uh, from your um your recommendation. And I for some reason thought they got acquired by Rocket Money. Anyway. Oh, interesting. No, no, no. That must have been someone else. But I um I love Copilot. I, I do use it, but I do think that th- I, this is just anecdotal. I do not have, you know, good data around this. But I will say that all of the like next level financial people that I know and talk to. And when I talk to people in our community that just have it on lock, those people are using spreadsheets. 
Mm. And I don't think it has anything to do with like, oh, Excel is going to make you better at money. I think it's the opposite that because Excel, those things are just more hands on that like you are going to just by the very nature of using a more hands-on product, become more intimately familiar with your money. I think sometimes the apps are too hands-off where like Mm -hmm. you don't have to be going in and like entering numbers. You don't have to be interacting with the data in a real way. It's very, it's almost too easy to like let the app just keep running in the background and give you that false sense of like, yeah, I'm doing something without actually like learning from the data. And so I, I, I think I'm, I tend to say if I could only have one, I would probably keep the spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's just a weird thing that I've noticed is that it seems like the people that are the most on top of it do have their own like money management systems that they're they're yeah. running and have built themselves or, you know, that they use from someone else. Love that. Yeah. We, um, we hired a financial planner finally this year and, uh, we use a company called Financial Gym, which I um, oh yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, which we you we like really, it? We've been loving it. We really enjoy right. it, and it's been a great experience. Uh, we don't feel like weird about them at all, or like it's they great vibes all around. But um, we do kind of a spreadsheet thing with them, and uh, I will say there is something very it's almost like writing down your to-do list and get, instead of keeping it in your phone or something yeah. like, right. Yes, There's yes. the prospect of, or the, uh, the idea of like writing it down and putting it somewhere that is very manual. And like, it's a very, you know, that to me, I think really solidifies the, the whole process and it makes it a little bit more tangible. And like, you're like, okay, I can see all these numbers and see where everything's going versus like having it be all over the place in an app. So that's a good analog. Yeah. Okay. Last one, a $7 latte, <laughs> which I haven't had in forever because I've been trying to save money. <laughs> so You're like, I'm so triggered asking this question right now. I really am. Oh man. See, these are, this is a tough one too, because generally I am not one of those people that says that like the, the coffee habit is the reason that, you know, I think that that whole, like that idea of like, oh, millennials are going to afford out. I mean, it's so tired. We all know that. Yeah. However, shit is getting a little out of hand. I have to be honest. I have, you know, I, I don't really go out for coffee often. I do have an espresso that I really like. I'm considering getting like a real espresso machine just because I really enjoy making like Americanos and Cortados at home. Yeah. But Man, I feel like every time I go out to coffee, it's either here in California or it's in New York City when I'm out there for work. And with tip, it's like seven or nine bucks every time. And I'm like, I could not make a habit of this. Like I would spend a small fortune on caffeine if I were to do this regularly. And so I think I'm like coming around on that one that it's almost just what it symbolizes of like, yes, if that is something that like, makes your day and gives you the juice that you need to like get through the day. And it's like a little ritual that you love and it's very meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. What an inexpensive and lovely way to like have that. Right. But sure. if it's just like another thing on the to-do list and it's just like, that's how you're drinking coffee and it's like, you're neither here nor there. I think it kind of represents like mindless overspending where mm-hmm. those things do add up. And as yeah. loath as I am to admit that like little things do matter. I think that I'm on this kick right now because I saw this TikTok where um, 
uh, a gal was like, I was in so much credit card debt and I realized it's because I literally just did not know how to tell myself no. Like I was so yes. you know, inundated with messages all day long on social media from people that were basically living luxury lifestyles, but purporting as though that was very normal. Like going yeah. to Aritzia and spending hundreds of dollars, going to Sephora and spending hundreds of dollars on a whim, traveling internationally, like always, always having Starbucks, like all these things that like, it feels like 15 years ago, everyone acknowledged that those were like very much upper class things. Like yes. no one was, no, no middle class person was like doing that 24 seven. But it's like this elevated baseline on on these platforms that makes you feel like those things are like, yeah, that's just like normal. That's just what everyone wow. does. I think that like getting takeout coffee every day is an example of that for me. So I don't know. I'm kind of in between on that one. You know, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Sure. Yeah. I'm Switzerland. Yeah. I think her name's Elizabeth is the, is the creator that you're uh, talking about. Cause I saw the exact same video. Yesterday. Oh, yes, you're yes, right. Yes. Elizabeth eats or something. Yeah, wow. I'm sure we yeah. have similar algorithms. <laughs> yes. I love her. Cause she talks, she talks about sobriety and she talks about uh, like living in a big city and being sober. And uh, she's like, you know, in her late twenties, I think too, but um, no, I loved that. Cause I sort of was like, you know, for a while, I think when we moved to a, a place where, this is where it will get you to is when you move to a place where the cost of living is lower, you mm. feel like you can kind of just like fuck around and find out with like, yeah. you know, getting coffee from the local place every day, which is an $8 coffee and yeah. like, and just, you know, sort of like doing those things every day because, oh, like we're not paying, you know, an insane amount in rent or yeah. like, or like our mortgage is what our rent used to be like, haha, you know, yeah. but, but then it's like, you look around and you're like, this still is it's still an $8 coffee. It doesn't yeah. matter what city you're in. Like <laughs> at the end of the day, that's why I'm like, I just like, I like keeping those things treats. I think when mm -hmm. they become too routine and they become the baseline, they lose a little bit of their luster. Yeah. And I think that sometimes that messaging that has become so popular in the personal finance world that we've just done such a 180. We're like, yeah. It used to be, don't do this, don't do this. You're going to jeopardize your future. And then it became, wait a second, but that's that's not the reason no one has any money. That's not going to, no, drink the coffee. It's fine. And I feel like now we're coming back to the other side where it's like, wait, but how much is the coffee? So yeah. like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I've kind of myself gone on that journey a little bit, but I think sure. at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm world peace about it as long as it's not like an everyday thing. Cause I think yeah. it should stay a treat. For sure. For sure. Oh, Katie, you are just an absolute gem. It has been such a delight to have you on the show. And oh, I just likewise. am so, so grateful that you were here. Before you go, plug your shit, give everybody the details. Where can they find you? Instagram, TikTok, website, wealth planner, all the things. <laughs> give us the give us the tea. Oh my gosh. I love it. Thank you. And by the way, may I just say that you made that joke about voice. And as soon as we got on, I was like, God, she's got a great podcast oh, voice. You, you really so do. You have an amazing voice. I'm like, I don't know if you've been coached, but it's excellent. Um, it's literally as as my dad. I'm not kidding. He's really, yeah, I just like audio production and voice acting. So my dad's just like, he's got the nicest voice I've ever heard in my life. So I'm Dude, just so like, do you though. I'm like, I could listen to you all day. Um, so to plug that. to plug money with katie things uh money with katie.com money with katie on all social platforms and then um the money with katie show if you are a podcast listener and you like to uh if my voice didn't drive you crazy then that's where you can hear more of it <laughs> amazing 
Katie, thank you so much for being here. You are just the best. And yeah, thank you. Can't thank, thank you, you enough. for having me. 